Hold on to your butts. Hello and welcome to the bonus episode of the Reviewed um, Movie Podcast. This is a bonus film school episode where we look at quote-unquote film school movies and uh, talk about whether or not they kind of earn that title. And I have back with me again filmmaker extraordinaire in the incredibly talented, the incomparable Shahir Dowd. Say hello, Shahir. Hello, Shahir. Thank you very much for that intro. It's very, very flattering and kind of you. <laughs> um, and... I uh, wanted to bring Shahir back on because I wanted to talk about a movie that I just wanted to geek out with for a little bit of time. And I know that you're a fan of this movie. In fact, you're such a fan of this film that I found out that you played clips of it at your wedding, which is just I, amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I did. And you know what? I'm I'm very excited that you invited me to talk about this one because, uh, you know, like obviously we talked about this on the Breathless episode. I went to film school. So there's this collective uh, there, there are the types of film that you talk about at film school. And this is a film that I'm passionate about, I love, but I never saw it at film school, and I've never talked to anyone about it. Oh, uh, ever, fascinating. I think. Right. You know, it was a direct influence for a film I made, and yes, I did play clips of it at my wedding. <laughs> but, but, but it's not a film that I've ever watched with anyone or talked with anyone about. Uh, so I'm very excited about you know to, to just hear someone else talk about it. And what is that film you may be asking? Well, your podcast title already tells you. But we are going to be discussing uh, the film, uh, the the first feature film from David Gordon Green um, uh, from the year 2000, George Washington. They used to get around, walking around, looking at stuff. They used to try to find clues to all the mysteries and mistakes God had made. My friend George said that he was going to live to be 100 years old. He said he said that he was going to be the president of the United States. I wanted to see him lead a parade and wave a flag on the 4th of July. He just wanted greatness. George Washington, um, I I call it a prototypical film school movie. And the reason I say that is this. So if the 1990s, uh, if the film world of the 1990s, the indie film world is totally defined by Quentin Tarantino, that would be like my thesis of the 1990s is that Quentin Tarantino defined them. And I think in the year 2000, when we hit the aughts, we had different filmmakers kind of starting to inspire the indie film scene. And I think at the forefront of that is David Gordon Green, a filmmaker who made George Washington and All the Real Girls and Undertow, which are these, like, I consider it to be kind of a trilogy that kind of fit together um, stylistically. Um, and he kind of changed the way people were thinking. I feel like he changed the way people were thinking about indie film at that time. And I think this movie w- was very different for a lot of people when people saw it. Um, well, first off, before I go any further, would you agree with that sentiment? 
I actually would not necessarily say that this is the film that defined the the noughts in terms of indie film. Okay, I, what, I would, would, what would be the movie? Out of curiosity, for me, the there's two films, and it would be they would be Memento and Eternal Sunshine, two completely stylistically different films, but that share one conceit that I think was important in the in the noughts, which was Messing high concept, <laughs> a high concept. No, that's true. Uh, you know, you know, like sort of high concept. Whereas I think George Washington was was maybe the last remnants of 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 an indie scene that doesn't necessarily exist today uh, at all. Because, uh, and, and I'll talk specifically about why I think that is. But but no, I I, I wouldn't. Have, I mean, I'm curious. Maybe you can change my mind about this. Like, what other films are you thinking about that that stylistically fit in? Well, okay, the, maybe I, I think maybe I phrased this wrong. But the reason I think it's so. I don't know. It's here's a. I think it um it reflects that indie desire um for people to make movies on no budget. Like everyone saw uh, El Mariachi and it's like, oh, I can go out and make a movie for no money. And George yeah. Washington kind of fits that spirit in a lot of ways. So it, yeah. it's like the um it's like the ultimate inspirational film school movie because it was made in no money with not real actors, you know, non actors in North Carolina. I believe they shot it, and it's just. I guess maybe it was for me at least when I saw it, it kind of changed my mind that I could make movies, you know, and um, or at least attempt to make movies. So when I think of it as like the prototypical film school movie, it's like the ultimate inspirational tale, you know? <laughs> right, right. I guess for me, those movies were, I mean, maybe it's because I'm a little bit older, but it, it was, they were probably El Mariachi following Clerks. Um, you know those kinds of films were the the films that were like oh you could go out and do this too i i you know and i just rewatched george washington i'm very um when i see george washington i get very i feel very uncomfortable because i feel like it's a film i couldn't make even though it's a film i really want to make if that makes sense no i think it's really funny that you said that because one of the first short films i've ever made was a ripoff of george washington and it's horrible oh, really? and no one was ever going to see it it's so bad <laughs> but i learned in making that horrible movie that sometimes you can admire in it's an aesthetic but you can't necessarily duplicate it and that was a big formative thing for me in making stuff is I learned that I can't necessarily copy everything that I like. You know, not everyone can pull off certain uh, styles. So Yeah, um, yeah. Well, and I mean, it might not, I mean, you've seen my short film Double Happy. We've talked about it a couple of times, but uh, George Washington is a direct influence on Double Happy, but I think it's stylistically nothing like it. And I think I had that same realization that you had, which was that even though I wanted my short film Double Happy to be sort of uh, languid and dreamy like George Washington, it ended up being nothing like that. It ended up being far more plot and exactly. You know, it's funny and, that you mentioned that because in talking about your film, like I would, I would not describe it like George Washington at all. Yes, it's about a, you know a youthful protagonist, but it's it's very plot driven, and George Washington is the opposite of that. Like there. Well, you know what? I'm getting ahead of myself. What is George Washington about? Well, that's a good question. Um, IMDb classifies it as a group of children in a depressed small town band together to cover cover up a tragic mistake one summer. That being said, it's a largely plotless movie. Um, we just talked about my neighbor Totoro on this podcast, and that is also a largely plotless movie. Um, 
I will say this though. I am a pl- I'm addicted to plot. I love plot. I love movies that have lots of plot. So it is so bizarre that this movie may be one of my top 10 movies of all time. And I don't know quite why. I guess my first question going, asking you, Shahira, it's a two-part question. One, how much do you need plot in a movie as a viewer, do you believe? And the, and the second part of that question is, how come George Washington gets away with not having a plot? <laughs> right. Um that's a, that's an excellent question, and I think I think it's really uh, over to what the viewer is interested in. It's interesting. Last night I, we just recorded a podcast on my podcast uh, about Terminator Two, which is so tightly plotted and so much about you know like one event leading to the consequence of another event, and 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 you know there's a like a domino effect in that kind of tight plotting, um, and even even a film that's kind of much more. Uh, dreamy like eternal sunshine of the spotless mind is still incredibly tightly plotted so now george washington fits completely in the opposite category which is that it is it is far more um I, you know i'm using i'm going to use this this is going to be my word of the night but languid and it is it's far more um the plot is is almost incidental to the story now this is of course famously um you know like the the, the director that really has made this famous is of course terence malick who's a direct influence on this film in particular uh david gordon green took uh, talks specifically about the influence of the thin red line uh on and days of heaven uh on this film um to me plot is incredibly important but so is atmosphere and and what i love about this particular film uh and the only way i can describe it is is that when i it's been a few years since i watched it but watching it again it felt like slipping into a warm blanket which is that i just kind of like being here dude i feel I the same <laughs> way it's so bizarre i you know it, it's funny when i plopped i brought i bought the criterion disc i hadn't seen this movie in like five years and i'm like i may hate this movie now because i'm no longer an impressionable 20 year old who you know was just wanted to make movies but after the first five minutes like nope nope when they did that like there was that opening <laughs> montage you know what i'm talking about when the uh, the voiceover first starts and there's that amazing shot of them running at sunset yeah. and slow-mo as that yeah. started happening and the rhythmic train drone was going on behind it, and i'm like no this is just as amazing as i remember it being it's, so. inc- it's, it's incredible right like I, I i had the exact same fear which is i was like i if i watch this now and, you know, you and I are both writers, so we're both, like, working in screenplays. And I, and I actually, I am a writer, but I hate writing so much because I think writing, you know, the, the, the screenplay format kind of um, reduces the power of what a film can do to its most reductive form. And, and you know, like, I hear these stories of, like, filmmakers like Wong Kar Wai basically working off an outline or a photograph or, you know, there's this Korean filmmaker, Kim Ki-duk, who I really love, who, who only has, like, a loose one-page sketch sometimes. Sometimes it's just an image. And, and the entire film is built off that. So I, I was worried, now that I live in the world of thinking about three-act structure and consequence and turning points and, and you know, like, dialogue needing to correlate to theme and that sort of thing, that a film like this, which basically eschews all of that, it just throws that entire idea out the window, would 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 kind of bore me, or I would be like, ugh, God, you know, you're a you know, twenty year old Shahir, you're the worst. <laughs> and, um, but no, and you know, like um, another film like this um, that I absolutely adore is the Assassination of J.C. James, mm-hmm. um, yep. and then also Terrence Malick's film. Um, 
oh, I've gone blank at the Pocahontas film. <laughs> um, a New World? A New World. I absolutely adore that film. And, and, and the thing about all of those films that are unlike, you know, tightly scripted and tightly plotted movies is that I don't actually ever want them to end. I just kind of like being in them. And, and to me, that is uh, not only a perfect substitute for plot, it's a really rare substitute for plot that I, I, not many films can actually do this and this well, which I think, you know, if, if, if you're going to critique uh, David Gordon Green for basically making a Terrence Malick film, the only thing I would say is it's really hard to make a Terrence Malick movie. And for someone to pull it off so effortlessly like this is pretty special. No, I think that's a really important point because this is the main thing, main thing I wanted to get at about talking about this movie is the problem with George Washington is that people like me watch it and then try to make a... Uh, you know, a very atmospheric type movie that is Malikian in style. And it ends up being the most boring <laughs> thing ever, which is what I ended up making. And I think a lot of, like I've, and I know in screening films for short of the week from a lot of indie or young filmmakers, I see a lot of people that attempt to create the atmosphere that you're describing, but ultimately fail. So is there something ta- like, this is a tough question, but is there something about this movie that you can point to? It's like, no, this is why it works where so many other people attempt this and just don't work at all. I think, you know, for me, um, you know, and and it's interesting as well. We're not really talking about the film just yet. We're talking about the sort of idea of the film, which is, which is kind of more of an, no, no, no. I think that's actually a good, just to acknowledge that that's what we're doing is kind of important in our reading of this film. Um, I think to me, it's, there's a number of things, but I think it all gets encapsulated into one word, which is immersion. And and like that is the way the the way I view the film is 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 an immersive experience. You know, it's about being there and feeling kind of um, the the sense of place and time and uh, and longing that this film kind of evokes. But I think that's true. The reason why it's true is that that it feels like, you know, if we jump onto the other side, the production of this film, it feels like the, the actual making of this film was a really immersive experience in that, you know, the actors don't feel like actors, even though they were cast and there was a script. It feels like we're just kind of... You know, like we just literally stumbled into scenes. Like I'm thinking about that that the sort of scene where uh, Nazia is sitting around with her family or you know cousins, I think, and uh-huh. getting her hair braided. And you know, like we're in that conversation for maybe five minutes before uh, Vernon comes in. You know, which is the point of that scene. Right. But it doesn't. You know, it just it just feels. Uh, immersive like we're there and it doesn't feel artificial in any way which I think you know could be where some of these things you know some of these sort of short films um, could go wrong if, if, if any hint of but you know what's interesting you know, about that is this is a movie about predominantly black kids uh, yeah. by a white director <laughs> Uh, That's you know, so, uh, the elephant so in the room you, on this when one. When you talk about the authenticity, I mean, and you know, I mean, I don't want to be the person that says a white filmmaker can't tell black stories or a black filmmaker. You know, I don't want to be that guy that would say that. But it does feel incredibly authentic. But ostensibly, David Gordon Green is not a part of the community that he's filming here. You know, it's not like, it's, you know, even I, I know Barry Jenkins wasn't or isn't gay, but in making Moonlight, he did have some knowledge of what it's like to be a black man in America, and that's important for that movie, right? So, 
is I mean, how does how does David Gordon Green get away with it? I guess. <laughs> so again, I'm gonna I'm gonna wax poetic a little bit when I talk about this film because I I think like to me, um, you know, cinema and filmmaking is kind of like a truth serum. And, and the reason why we might have hesitation about, say, a white filmmaker making an exclusively black film is that I don't, you know, we, we presume that the, through the filter of cinema, the truth of, of being, uh, uh, you know, of, of portraying uh, black America won't be on display because of the white filmmaker not knowing that truth or not being able to express that truth. And I think the reason, you know, from a poetic point of view, the reason is that, that this film works is that there's a way in which this camera and the way in which Tim Orr, the cinematographer, and David Gordon Green look and treat their subjects, which doesn't feel like a filmmaker stepping into a room and directing a scene. It feels like a filmmaker stepping into the room sitting up in the corner very quietly, you know, not making themselves be aware, but also being respectful to the people that are in the room and just allowing them to be. And I think if cinema has the capacity to be a truth serum, that is a powerful indicator of the truth. Now, where it goes wrong is when, you know, like the, the worst example would be uh, uh, a filmmaker, a, a filmmaker who's not of color going into a neighborhood of color and Im- imposing the stereotypes of color onto a neighborhood of color. And I think, you know, that that's the classic uh, case where uh, this would not work. But 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 when I watch this, I don't uh, you know, I don't feel like there uh, that David Gordon Green is looking at this as a white man in a black neighborhood. He's not got an anthropological eye. Mm-hmm. He's he's looking at this as though as a human being. And I know that's that sort of flowery flowery language but but when the only way i could justify that is to just say to anyone just watch the movie it doesn't feel like if if when you watch the movie if someone told you this was a black filmmaker you'd totally believe it and then if someone told you it was a white filmmaker you'd go oh that's surprising i why does it feel like why does it feel so authentic and i think you know (laughs) in my in my most altruistic optimistic view of the world that is what cinema can do and that is what filmmaking should do, and it's something that you don't see very often. Um, and I and, it's, and I would also argue the movie, the movie isn't about. Um, it's not about the race. black. It's not about the black yeah. experience. It's more about the experience of being a kid, uh, yeah. uh, and poverty, which are uh, yeah. two things. Um, and you know, I didn't I didn't grow up poor by any stretch of the imagination, but I did grow up in rural Virginia, and there is something that is intrinsically honest about what kids do because the idea of boredom and just what they do with like boredom. Like there's just so many shots in this movie that are just perfectly poetic encapsulations of what it's like to be a bored 12 year old. Like when George like throws a briefcase full of water, like uh, yeah, I'm not a briefcase, moment. like yeah. a, uh, I'm not sorry, a suitcase of water. Yeah. And it's just like, yeah, because kid just throws things and do stuff like that's what they do. Like, and it's just, it feels so authentic in that regard as well. And I think that there, if there is anything about, uh, it's like the old adage in filmmaking that you should write what you know or you should make what you know. Well, I have a feeling that David Gordon Green knew what it was like to be a kid growing up in the poor South, you know? Um, and I'm not saying he was poor, but I think he understood that world or at least had a respect for 
people inside of it. So, yeah, I think I think that's probably true. I don't know, but but you know, to your point about like, um, could another filmmaker make Moonlight, for example? Um, I think if 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 this film proves anything, is that any film could have made film, any filmmaker could make Moonlight if they have the same respect and authenticity to character that that David Gordon Green demonstrates here. Um, we're actually, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to plug my podcast, but but on the only podcast about movies, we're doing a, a, an episode next week about race and representation. And I think I will be talking about George Washington oh, nice. in that respect. But unfortunately, not a lot of people have seen this movie. But it's a, it's, you know, it's a really, really good case study for that. Counterpoint this as well. And I don't know if you've seen um, Charles Burnett's film, Killer of Sheep, which I, I again was also a direct influence on this film. Have no, you, I have not seen, seen that film. So that that film kind of stylistically uh, is fairly similar to George Washington, but but a lot of people it, it's actually a film I don't enjoy as much as George Washington, but but it is a a film about the you know that's it's in the Library of Congress for example as a as an important cinematic work. Uh, it's about the African American experience in in Watts in L.A. and it's made by an African American filmmaker. But I th- my point here is is that. This film is so um, devoid of judgment and and devoid of imposition on its characters, and I think and I think the fact that it's got such a slight storyline is actually part of that as well. It's like it doesn't even impose like a a forceful narrative on these characters; <laughs> right. it just kind of like lets them be, um, and that's what makes it kind of uh, I guess globally you know globally true like you know like like it it doesn't matter who made this it just feels honest and true now that's it i'm speaking as a viewer with a very specific experience to this film and someone from this community or other people who've watched this film who might be poor and you know african-american in small southern communities might you know laugh off everything i've just said and said no this is not true to my experience whatsoever um so i could be completely wrong about that but it but to me, the reason I watch it and the reason why I enjoy it is it feels entirely true. And it, fe- it doesn't make you feel weird about watching this community. It makes you feel part of it. And, and I think, you know, it comes back to that word for me, immersion. No, that's like, I mean, yeah, it's just an immersive film. It's a film that um, I initially saw, I think, on the Sundance channel, I want to say, in college. And I, caught, I just caught the middle of it. And then I saw the beginning at a different time. And, you know, oddly, that didn't hurt my experience at all in watching the movie. I know that sounds awful. But like you're saying, again, because it's not a plot-heavy movie, I just feel like there are moments and scenes that you can kind of just live in for a while and moves on to the next. And it's got, an, it's got a such a incredible tone and all that good stuff. Why don't we talk about the movie itself, though? And let, let's, yeah, talk about, let's talk about like what it's actually I, – I, I keep on saying it's plotless. But, like, what is it about – what is it trying to say? Does it get you emotionally and why? That kind of thing. Just to kind of set the stage, basically it follows this group of uh, kids in a, you know, uh, you know, dog days of summer in uh, the, the rural south. I don't think it's ever quite specified where. I'm assuming it's North Carolina because that's where he went to film school, but, you know, whatever. Yeah. Um, it's it kind of in this post-industrial kind of grunge south. Everything's kind of shot at magic hour. And it follows these kids. Um, and the, 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 there is one major plot element in the film, like the actual, if you consider it plot-based, uh, plot-based element, is that a character named Buddy, uh, accidentally um, dies while um, 
slipping in a bathroom. And it's kind of like the rest of the kids kind of coming to terms with that and how it affects them for the second part of the movie, basically. So kind of the movie is structured, I think, in almost in two acts. There's no real three-act structure here, but it's kind of like one act is kind of leading up to that moment and then everything else that happens after that. Is that kind of a fair description, you think, of structural uh, of the movie? Yeah, that that that's fairly that's pretty accurate. Again, you know, like um, the the thing to remember as well for anyone who hasn't watched the movie, and I don't know if we're doing spoilers at this point. Oh, I mean, I but, just I just spoiled the whole thing. So, yeah. <laughs> well, but 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 that whole plot line about the death of Buddy feels entirely coincidental to the film you're watching. It's like it it, it seems like. It's just, oh, this other thing that happened while we were following these kids. <laughs> right. uh, you know what I mean? Like, it, 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 the, the death of one of the characters would, in any other film, feel like the, the entire mechanism by which the story anchors itself around. And that's not what this film does with that plot line. It basically uses that almost as a, a poetic jumping-off point to explore these kids' lives um, in sort of interesting ways. And, and you know, like uh, um, another film, uh, two other films that come to mind are Mean Creek and Larry Clark's film Bully. Um, oh, okay. Yeah. I am, yeah. um, I've, uh, Larry Clark's guy, the kids, correct? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, kids. And I think, you know, like the, the, those two films hinge upon a similar event. But, but if you look at the way that those two films dramatize and basically anchor every scene, as consequence of that event it's nothing like what's happening in george washington you know like it, it, george the death of buddy in george washington feels almost incidental and if you missed it it's not a big deal well i mean it does it does it, it does cause character change which i think is important yeah. um i mean there are i mean there are you know that happened so this happened type things in terms of character the idea is that george who's kind of uh, ostensibly the protagonist but not really but he is kind of I don't want to say he's mentally challenged, but he's definitely slow, right? You would agree right. with that? Um, he, yeah. Or simple as you know, as, as, as if I was being like in the 1900s, they call they call him simple, basically. He um, has a particular character trait that that causes this, though. It's not like it's. Uh, uh, I mean, you know, I'm presuming you're about to explain what that is. Oh, you mean with his head and his helmet and yeah. stuff like that? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. He, I don't even know if that's actually a real condition, is it? But. Um, I am. I, I don't know, but again, I, I believe it to be true, so I'm going to go with it. Well, his cranium is soft, so he can't like get his head wet, and he's always wearing helmets and hats and stuff like that to protect it. Um, he's, you know, because of this event, he feels like he's, uh, you know, he ends up basically diving into a pool to save another kid after that, and that experience kind of makes him want to be like a superhero or a great person to kind of, you know, help people. And in in in, in a poor rural south way he does this by adorning buddy's um wrestler uniform but because it's spandex like a superhero you know he wraps a towel around his neck to as a cape you know it's it's that kind of thing it's like the childhood fantasy of being the person that's going to go around and save people and do good so that affects him in that way and then vernon who's i guess the oldest of the group um he is profoundly affected because he feels guilty over what happened so i mean there is a, there is effects uh, for the people that were there when it does happen. I don't want to say like the, it's not important, the actual event, but it's also not like 
there's no like super investigation. Like another movie would have like an investigation where the police were trying to figure out who did it and the kids had to talk to each other about covering, you know, like that never happens in this movie. So, yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, even the, the way you described what happens, there's no like correlative if then kind of thing. You know, there's no, you know, if you're programming this, there's no if. Uh, there's no, there's none dies, of that. There's no, yeah. yeah, there's no like of that South Park, you know, yeah. you know, like the uh, Trey yeah. Parker, Matt Stone philosophy of yeah, this happens exactly. and then this happens, and like that famous kind of screenwriting tenet. Yeah, like like, yeah. like Buddy, um, uh, sorry, uh, you know, George's um, uh, transformation to the superhero is kind of almost, uh, it feels almost unrelated to to Buddy's death. You know what I mean? Like, it doesn't necessarily... Like, that could have happened if Buddy died or didn't die. Um, and and I think, you know, like, it, it... You know, because it's more related to him saving uh, the other child at the pool, which is, which is something that, you know, something maybe slightly more profound in that he shouldn't have jumped in the water because his head is not fused together and he can't get his head wet and that sort of thing. Right. So there's this, like, weird... Uh, soft, you know, it's almost like his skull fused together. There's a soft connective tissue uh, in this film, but it's it's kind of beautiful and what makes this film stand out. And and it's it's a really tricky thing to like narrow down because it's so ephemeral. It's so it's so much you know like in the ether, and it's hard to like pin down. But underpinning all of this, again, I'm going to come back to that one word is that. The entire film is immersive. So even though the connective tissue of the narrative doesn't seem to hold together as strongly as we, you know, like writing class or, you know, Robert McKee would tell you it needs to, you go along with it. And I think that's a, that's a, a, especially this film, the thing I was really worried about is would I, you know, like now that I live in, in the Twitter sphere and Facebook and, you know, I'm addicted to my phone would I set aside the 90 minutes that it's required to watch this film and not look at my phone once? And the thing is, is that, again, because I I love being in this film and I love being in this world, I completely was able to just move along with what's happening. Yeah, and it's so bizarre because if you were to describe this movie to me, I would say that it sounds so boring. And I yeah. would say that, like, I... I, 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 wa- I I don't. I hate using this word, and I want to talk about this word specifically as it relates to film school movies. But it's the kind of movie that a low rent film critic would call pretentious, right? Like this. You know what I'm saying? Like, uh, um, and I hate that word because that word's used. It's overused and it's incorrectly used. But this movie, I don't know why this movie works when I feel like I've seen so many other movies that try to be this kind of. Maybe it's profound because it's not trying too hard to be profound. You know, I don't know. I, I, maybe that's why George Washington works. But I just don't understand how this movie is so effective. Like to me, like I can't stop thinking about it when I watch it, all that kind of stuff. But I'm such a person that loves plot. And I like I like entertaining blockbuster movies. And I like movies that have a very structured plot. And when if someone would say if someone a filmmaker were to come to me is like, I want to direct the movie based on an outline without a script, I'd roll my eyes and tell them go write a script like that's what I would tell them. But right. for some reason, <laughs> George <laughs> yeah. Washington proves everything that I believe about movies wrong. And I think that's why I'm so fascinated by it. And that's why I think it's so 
great. <laughs> <laughs> well, as someone who gets called pretentious uh, often, um, especially on my own podcast, um, I would uh, caution, you know, and, and, and one of the things I would think about is what is the definition of pretentious as it relates to George Washington? And pretension is the, uh, the overestimations of one's reach beyond one's ambition. And, and you know, um, the case here is, is that there, the film is absolutely within the grasp of its own ambition and its ambitions are lofty in that it, it, it is attempting to, um, to, again, again, the word I'm going to use all, all night is immerse us in these four, in these four friends in a way that only a film can do. And I think, and I think as much as it has to do with this community, as much as it has to do with poverty and as much as it has to do with, um, you know, and a, a uniquely American experience, uh, as the title would suggest, it's it's also a uniquely cinematic experience. You know, like it's something that only a film could do. A piece of literature might be able to do it, but may not capture the the, the sort of visual essence of it. it a, a poem could potentially do it, but but you know wouldn't as be be as textural as this. Uh, a song I don't think could do it. A you know graphic novel. It's something that's so uniquely cinematic. Totally. Um, yeah. and, and and that's just you know, it's so uh, you know one of the things I, I I try to harp on to uh, on my podcast and and you know and when I was at film school is that you need to. You know, if you're going to come up with a with an argument about a film, you need to support it with evidence, or you need to like make a an actual argument. And my argument about this movie is that there's some magic in the air here, and I don't know what it is. No, I, but I, it's so compelling. Yeah, you know, I feel the same way. There is something, you know, the magic of cinema is abounds in this movie, and the thing. You know, going back to the idea of pretentious, is you could argue that the movie is trying to say something about poverty, but as you also mentioned, it's not. It never has a moment where it expands too far beyond its own reach in regards to that. Uh, it never talks directly. You know, it's funny. Um, you know, for a movie that is basically all about these kids being poor, it never has a moment that really hammers that in directly. It's all. In the it's all in the surrounding nature of the movie and the surrounding scenes about what they're doing and why they're doing it and the fact that they don't have that many clothes and you know it 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 it, it kind of reflects it in that way which is why I think that's so powerful and the the thing I harp uh, I'm harboring about harping harping mm. on about po- poverty is the fact that nothing is more film school pretentious than a movie about a homeless person right like that's like the course, most yeah. it's like the ultimate cliches of you know indie first time filmmaker like a homeless person a bum looking sad like that i've seen so many short films that feature that and, and they've always got terrible makeup and the hair you know you, that's the the hallmarks of making it pretentious is that it's it's inauthentic in in some way and that's right. that's the problem right and that's what george washington somehow supersedes because it's not inauthentic it, it's so it's the opposite of that it's so authentic and these kids that he found even when they stumble on their lines like there are moments when you can tell they like, they stumbled on their lines for some reason it still works and sounds natural or feels natural and i don't think any of these kids ever went on to do anything 
major or amazing, but they're just perfect here. So I don't know. And the the faces he selects, uh, um, the one who plays George's uncle, like his face is like just amazing. Damascus. Yeah, Damascus. Yeah, yeah. It's phenomenal. And even he has a nice character moment where he reveals about, you know, why he's scared of dogs and what that means. And I I don't know. I just, I fucking love this movie, man. I don't know. I feel feel so inarticulate talking about it because it's a movie that when you try to encapsulate, the argument comes down, yeah, it's just really atmospheric. And I really enjoyed staying in that atmosphere. So, Yeah. I I mean, I I think in the case of Damascus, now remember, uh, and the reason I, again, I didn't see this in film school, but when I was teaching some classes on filmmaking, I would show... Um, uh, this DVD because it has um, David Gordon Green's short films in there, uh, Physical Pinball being one of them, which has got Damascus in it. Um, and and I think, you know, like of any scene in the film, now the, the thing about it is is the film is obviously fairly enigmatic in its title. What does George Washington mean? Because the character's name isn't George Washington. And at some point it alludes, you know, like the Nazi's voiceover alludes to the fact that he wanted to be president, but it does it in that sort of not, it's not a realistic, he wants to be president. It's more like one day, you know, like a I want to grow up to be, be Batman, that kind of yeah, thing. Yeah. Yeah. I could, I could be a president. But, but I th- the thing that was interesting that watching it this time around, and maybe we are particularly sensitive. Um, you know, I, I the interesting thing is is that every time I've watched this film, I haven't lived in America, and this is the first time I watched this film living in America. And and the scene with Damascus being, you know, basically quitting his job at the beginning, is a fairly loaded composition, which is that it has Damascus with his boss and his boss's son surrounding him while he is, you know, like shirtless, sweaty. And there's this sort of there's a I don't I I don't want to say the word necessarily, but there's a kind of uh uh, a slavery yeah. uh, amalgamation in mm-hmm. this image. There's something that conjures that image, and it conjures the 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 imbalance of power. You know, as Damascus is the sweaty laborer who feels like he's being treated unfairly, and in fact he is. You know, because his the the father is saying, "I'm gonna, you know, you can continue to work for me, but I'm gonna dock your pay." And he's like, "Well, I work all these hours and I do all these things, and this one mistake means I dock my pay." Is that inequality of labor that that the the south evokes uh, you know in terms of slavery as well so i think i i think i wouldn't under you know like i it it seems like we're saying david gordon green just took a and his cinematographer just took a camera and set up shop uh with these characters but i i think there are some smart subtle cues in this film that have been thought about that are placed kind of fairly um fairly subtly but they are there, and I think, and I think that's what makes this a powerful film. Is that it's enigmatic, and there is qualities that you get out of it every time you watch it. Mm-hmm. And the things that, the things that feel kind of subtle and just kind of discovered by the camera are actually, you know, were placed quite uh, uh, confidently and quite placed quite sort of deliberately. Um, so I, I think you know it's important not to dismiss the kind of the the direction that 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 this film has. It's just not the kind of direction that we're used to, especially from a twenty five year old filmmaker. Well, that's what I, I want to talk a little bit about David Gordon Green uh, in particular because imagine being twenty five and knocking it out of the park. Like, I mean, <laughs> you I'm mean, serious. You mean the Orson Welles theory of filmmaking? Well, I mean, <laughs> I I it's, this is one of my great fears actually is doing what David Gordon Green did. I mean, he 
he actually went on to make movies that I love. I, I all the real girls is another favorite of mine. Um, yeah, uh, it's I, I I I almost like that movie equally to George Washington. I um, just just again because he captures the texture. Uh, he captures the texture of a community so well. Um, yeah. But. Um, now he's a filmmaker. You know, he ended up diverting and making some mainstream studio studio comedies, which is totally fine. I mean, he's allowed to have a sense of humor and make studio comedies if he wants, and if he wanted to do that. But where does he? I mean, I mean, have where you does seen? He get did you, off. <laughs> well, did you watch? Did you watch Prince Avalanche uh, at all? And did you I, enjoy that movie? Uh, or, or Joe, or any of those kind of his smaller movies that he's made relatively recently, or no? Uh, so, so with him, I kind of watched everything up until Pineapple Express. Yep, and then I kind of, <laughs> and then I kind of like fell off a little bit because I was like, uh, you know, I watched George Washington, All the Real Girls, Undertow. I didn't see Snow Angel. Snow Angels is great, by the way. It's uh, great. I, sh- I should check that. that. Has Kate Beckinsale in it? I think or um, there's Sam Rockwell. I remember is in it. Okay. Um, okay. Yeah, she might. I haven't seen it in a while, but I remember quite enjoying it. Um, and, but yeah. And then I was, you know, like, I think like everyone was kind of a little bit surprised by by this sudden turn to do uh, a, basically a stoner comedy with Pineapple Express and then follow that by your another highness. St- another stoner comedy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I was like, what, how is, like, imagine if Terrence Malick turned up tomorrow and said, hey, I want to do uh, Superbad or I want to, <laughs> you know, like, you know, something like that. You were kind of like, what? Um, well, and then, I mean, and then, also, but I mean, someone like Spike Jones is a filmmaker that is an art house filmmaker that has also a mainstream aesthetic in the sense that he was in the Jackass Gang, and like, yeah. I don't think I don't think just because you're a smart guy I means you prohibits you from making stuff that's dumb fun. Like, I don't think that is fair either. But continue. No, no, no. You're absolutely right. And the thing about when I saw Pineapple Express is I actually I loved Pineapple Express. I thought I thought, and it was like I think the the. The authenticity of comedy was as true in Pineapple Express as it as as was the authenticity of of immersion in George Washington. Um, you know, like I I didn't believe that he was phoning it in with Pineapple Express. I think he was genuinely making a kind of Cheech and Chong film that he might have loved growing up, and and it was and he was very true to that vision. And I I think that's true. Like Eastbound and Down, which is a show that he shepherded in. Um, I and it was still, Jody Hill's thing though, right? Or yeah, but but he produced it and directed episodes as okay. well um i i think is an authentic vision of like his brand of comedy because it's such a specific type of comedy um that that you don't really see very often um so i, I you know while i was surprised by that turn i you know when i saw the films i was like well he's not phoning in now that said i uh, i didn't see the sitter which i heard very you know uh, I'm not. Yeah, I didn't see that. I haven't seen Your Highness, and yeah. um, I didn't see Our Brand is Crisis um, or and Manglehorn. I, you know, yeah, he's still, he's still, he's he's cranking them out. Yeah, he still makes movies. Uh, yeah, it's yeah. just, um, it's just he doesn't. I don't feel like he's either making the same style or maybe he's trying new things or he's evolved. But I guess going back into my original question is, I mean, is it a good thing if if is it a good thing if the first movie you make is the one that defines your career? Is that a good thing or is that a bad thing? Like, uh, it's like the M. Night Shyamalan syndrome, right? Like, I know he yeah. made a movie or two before The Sixth Sense, but for everything after that is now, defi- is now at, at least in my head, defined by The Sixth Sense. And I feel like David Gordon the Green is always going to be the guy that made George Washington for me. Um, I guess it's not as well seen, much seen, obviously, as seen as... Uh, yeah. Sixth Sense, but I don't know. I, I guess when you make your first feature film, which you're probably going to do in the next ten years, let's say, 
Yeah. Are you worried? Like, obviously you want that movie to be good and you're going to work as hard as you possibly can to make it good, but you don't want it to be your best movie that you're ever going to make, right? <laughs> I, I don't think anyone does. And I, I mean, I think to me, this is, sounds like one of those great problems to have. You know, <laughs> you, you know like if, you, if, you, if the first movie you make is amazing, then the, the problem that you should be worried about is if the first movie you make is terrible and <laughs> they never get better. You know, no, that's, that, that that's, is true. Yeah. You know, um, I, I, it seems like a good thing. I, I don't think this is the same sort of situation as like, uh, you know, the Orson Welles syndrome of like making the best film. And, and remember that this problem is a, is a problem of perception in the public's eye, not necessarily in the filmmaker's eye. Fair point. Um, so um, I, I, I I think, you know, like the thing to remember about George Washington as well is that it was made on a shoestring budget kind of strung together and then famously rejected from Sundance and then accepted at other film festivals uh, and then went on to have its own life, you know, given by his other films. Um, I actually think we haven't seen the best of David Gordon Green yet. I think I think he's still a very young filmmaker and is still a really interesting voice. So I think... Um, you know, like if we think about Terrence Malick, I think the film that might define Terrence Malick's is The Thin Red Line, which is, uh, you know, the third film in his career, the fourth film in his career. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, but he's third, also a third. filmmaker. Malick's interesting, but he's a filmmaker that after The Tree of Life, I don't think I've seen a movie he's done. I know he's made like three movies since then. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, um, because I get uh, this gets into that interesting question is like, when does something become boring if you're not invested in it? And like, I have a feeling that isn't it like Prince of Cups or something like that? I have a feeling yeah. that movie Night would just Cups, be yeah. would be just so boring to me, and it's it's weird I, to I, see. Have you seen that movie? I have seen that movie, and it was a movie like where I sat down to like with most Malick films, I kind of put it on and go, I'm just going to watch ten minutes of this, and I end up watching the whole thing. This was one where I watched ten minutes, and I was like, boy, I can't do the rest of this. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to really struggle through this one. Well, it's like my wife says when I like try to you know I put in a movie I get from Netflix or whatever, and she's like, what kind of movie is? I'm like, oh, it's an art house movie, and she's like, can we just watch a normal house movie for <laughs> <laughs> a normal house movie? I like that. I'm going to use that at some point <laughs> because you know. Um, but the thing about George Washington is, I, you know, to go back to this film, is I think it's accessible in a way that isn't distancing as certain art house movies are, you know? I think there's an accessibility here that is just kind of engaging. It's just kind of, uh, it's just kind of like, you know, like you said, you like existing in this world, which I think is really, really important. I think, I, th- I think there's a very specific type of film viewer that, in- that, that can make the the mental leap from I'm going to watch a film that is just about time and place over plot. To your point, I think if if people um, kind of give it a shot, they will kind of enga- they will engage with it. But it, but for me personally, it's not necessarily a film I would recommend. Uh, you know, I would have to really think long and hard about the person I'm recommending it to um, before I before I recommended it because it's you know like. Uh, it is the kind of film where someone could turn to the you know to the person next to them within ten minutes and say, "Why is nothing happening?" Um, <laughs> and and you know and that would be unfortunate because I think it would bypass the the sort of the treasure of this film and 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 what it is. But but it, you know like it just it it to to go back to the question about David Gordon Green and and the type of filmmaker he is. The thing that I do. Even though I haven't like kept up, you know, Prince Avalanche and Joe, I've always been like, I'm going to watch those at some point when I, you know, get a minute to sit down. Um, and I think once I do, I'll kind of get back into the swing of it. Mm-hmm. Is that 
is that I think this this variety of what he is interested in is exciting, you know, because the idea, like, so he's just actually signed up to do Halloween. Um, oh, that's which interesting. We're not, okay. Which we're not sure if it's a remake of Halloween, but I was like, you know, this is a guy that I think would make a really interesting Halloween movie, and I would be curious to see what his version of it would be like. Um, you know, so uh, I, I don't think we've seen... Uh, the absolute best of David Gordon Green. I think we've seen many films that say that this is an interesting, dynamic filmmaker who knows and understands cinema and can work in a variety of genres and 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 budgets. And and for that, you know, we should, even if the film like The Sitter isn't a very good film, I'm curious to see what he has to say because George Washington and all the real girls in Undertow demonstrate that for him, making a movie isn't just about putting bums in seats to watch, you know, to, to, to pay for popcorn. It's actually about expressing an idea and expressing some sort of, um, tr- some sort of truth. So, um, I'm, I'll close this out in a little bit. I do want to talk about one other thing and it's the white characters in the movie. I want to talk about, um, Paul Schneider and his gang of fellow workers. Mm-hmm. I want to talk about Paul Schneider as an actor. He's an actor that I love. I think he's one of the great, actors that doesn't really work anymore <laughs> unfortunately. Yeah, unfortunately i think uh, maybe being cut from parks and recreation probably killed his career um but holy moly do i think he's got like just the way he says his lines he's like nah, uh, 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 uh. Mm-hmm. like the way he like says that is just like i don't know why i find that so amazing and he, he does similar things in um all the real girls and even in a movie not directed by david gordon Green, uh, lars and the real girl yeah i remember he was in that yeah um and he's even in um cameron crowe's elizabeth town which i'm actually a defender of that movie which i know is really sad but um i i have not seen it so yeah maybe i should give it a try i mean if you're in if you're ready to be sapped up i mean it's not that bad <laughs> but um no he's just an actor i find endlessly fascinating but i guess my question is what is his point in the movie because this, this you know, again, not about a ton of stuff, but let's say these characters are the people it's focusing on. What do these? What do his side characters and his gang of side characters add to the movie? And do you do you like their addition to the movie? Or as some, I've read a lot of people that find their um, inclusion actually annoying and don't add anything to the movie. What do you think about them? I'm I I think the actual banter between them is really fascinating. There's that other character who I, I can't actually tell which actor he is because I don't think he went on to do much. Um, but there's another actor who kind of talks about living a clean diet and like, right, right. Know, he, he opens eating well and all that kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And he, and he's like, he has this sort of monologue about, I want my, I want my shit to smell good. You know, <laughs> like I'm, I want to be proud of the shit I have. And I kind of like, I was like watching it going, well, I forgot how funny this film could actually be. Um, but I, I love the, the kind of witty repartee between those between those characters and the thing that I think I I'm always surprised about and maybe this comes from a film like Stand By Me is that you presume that the gang of four older kids and the gang of four younger kids are going to be anim- you know are going to have animosity towards one one another and particularly you're going to think you know like the my my brain is conditioned to say that these four white characters are going to be are going to be racially um, uh, antagonistic to the to these minority characters, but 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 they're, they're not. not. They're not they're at not, all. They're and, not and, at all. They, In fact, they're endearing. They're 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 kindly to them. They're, there's a funny line where uh, the the character I was talking about before, you know, meets up with Buddy, and you know, and he's like, "How's your pee?" 
You know, like, is it clear? <laughs> it should be clear. And it's like, it's actually sort of genuinely tender and affectionate and like they like each other and they're, you know, they're looking out for each other. And I think they watch again, fireworks together. There, there's a <laughs> sequence where, um, where, you know, at the end of the movie, when George comes up to them and says, all my friends are dead. And then he's like, what do you mean all your, like, he's like, he's actually like listening to him. Like he, yeah. Yeah, it, it, it is. I know that you mentioned there's like the symbol, uh, uh, the symbolism potentially of Damascus, like the, the whole slave, you know, in the South thing, yeah. but it's an oddly post-racial movie, right? Like it's never really, race isn't ever really brought up. There, there's a white, there's one white kid in the group, Sonia, the girl. Um, yeah. and that's never like mentioned that she's like the white one. Like it's, it's oddly post-racial, I would say almost, almost to the point where I, um, I kind of love the movie even more for that because it's not about, it may be about class and poverty, but it's not about race. I don't think this movie is, but I don't know. And I, I think, you know, like the act of making it like that is it reflects more on us as an audience, you know, because I'm expecting it to be racially divided and it's just not. And, and you know, like that makes there's a sort of interesting meta commentary that happens in my brain as I'm watching it going, what's wrong with me? to not see the world the way these characters do. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah. and, and, and that's kind of why I like being there, you know, like why I like living in this world is that it feels like uh, as much as it is, there is this sort of um, thread of desperate poverty, especially through Damascus's character. Um, there's this sort of lovely kind, as you say, post-racial world where none of the expectations that I have, that I have through conditioning and through living in the world that we actually live in, they don't feel true in this world. And maybe that's the naivete of being a child. Maybe that's the, you know, the innocence of, of, of uh, this time and place that these children are in. Uh, but it's not something that I find in a film like Mean Creek or Bully or, mm-hmm. or almost any other film that I watch. You know, like it's just not there. So um, it's getting late and I know you want to get home. So I'm going to have one final question for you and then we can kind of close out this. What is your favorite uh, monologue, narration, or a bit of dialogue in the film? Huh, that's a really good one. Now, I I was trying to remember uh, because this is a mon- very narration heavily movie, and it's also narrated very much like Days of Heaven by the not the major character. It's narrated by Nausea. Um, yeah, uh, but she's got some beautifully poetic things that she says. Um, I, but yeah, yeah, it's they're they're lovely, and I think I think the line that I love the most because. You know, as a writer, I think you're, you know, like there's a there's a correlation between meaning and intent and and then taking that and and reflecting it in a way that's surprising and poetic. You know, uh, you don't want to say the cat made me sad. You want to say something along the lines of. Uh, sadness wrapped me like a fur ball or something like that. You know what I mean? Like you want right. to, you want to find some way to express an idea, um, you know, poetically. I don't know why I just slipped on that. This is all off the top of my dome. I'm not reading, I'm not reading my diary or anything right now. <laughs> um, but there's a line where Nazia is talking about her friends and this might be a cop out cause it's right in the beginning, but she oh, says no, it's like, the, it's like the, it's like the moment of the movie, man. Like that's yeah. it. And she says something along the lines of, when I look at my friends, I see goodness. And sometimes I want to look at their skin and, and imagine the bones underneath. And I don't know what it is about that particular line, but there's a, there's a kind of, uh, a poetry to, to basically loving someone so much that they're, that they're, you know, like the, 
the very essence of them means something to you, mm-hmm. um, which is which is what I love about that line. I think there's a line in all the real girls that I really remember, and this is a film I've only ever seen once, but it's something along the lines of "I wish you were peanut butter," and <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, that is such a uh, that's such an unexpected line, but it's a, such a lovely encapsulation of of loving someone that that it kind of is completely true. Um, and, and that's why I love that particular line from Nazia, you know, this idea of like, I see goodness in, in, in my friends and I see that they're good people. Um, no, that's a good yeah. one. I, I was going to say, I think that they're, uh, Nazia is kind of opening narration, kind of like in that opening sequence, which I think is probably like, if you're going to watch the 10 minutes of this movie, that's like the 10 minutes you need to watch because it's just so enrapturing. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the one actually speech I wanted to talk about that I think really affects me every time I think about it is when Vernon is kind of like breaking down in front of oh, Sonia. So good. I wish I had my own <laughs> tropical island. I wish. I wish I could go to China. Like he just keeps yeah. on listing all these things. And I don't know. Like I like it makes me want to cry just thinking about uh, that sequence. It's heartbreaking. Yeah. Because there's something about this idea of like wanting more in life and knowing that you can't have it and it just feeling like there's so much not within your grasp. And I think that sequence captures that without ever, ever, like, again, ever feeling pretentious, ever feeling like it's going too far or feeling sappy or saccharine. It's, it's an, I don't know, it's an amazing monologue. And it's something that I, you know, I've, I've seen this movie, I think it's like the third time I've watched this movie. And I, um, it's, it's it, I think about that monologue almost on a daily basis. It's yeah, pretty it's, crazy. It's, <laughs> you're, you're, you know, as soon as you said it, I was like, oh yeah, that is, that is a great moment in this film. And it's such a, it, like you say, it, 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 it's demonstrating, you know, ver- the way Vernon is being affected by this event. But it's not just about Buddy dying; it's about his his inability to escape who he is. Exactly. Uh, and it's just it's just beautiful and such a lovely performance as well. Uh, you know, single take from this actor. Um, uh, you know, I. I uh, to, to, where did this moment come from? As far as David Gordon Green, the writer and director, kind of you know, conjured up out of thin air is hard to describe. Um, but that is an absolutely lovely moment. I wanted to ask you one question that I think um, we haven't gotten. I know we want to we wrap this up. But how do you think the title of the film correlates to the events of the film or correlates thematically to, to what this movie is about? Um, I kind of think it relates to what that monologue that Vernon was talking about. I think it's this desire to feel to know that you're going to be remembered and do great things, but whether the impossibility of achieving that based on your circumstances, if that makes any sense. So um, George, you know, wants to be a superhero and people want to escape or leave, uh, but they won't. So maybe this is wrong, but I think that the title is almost um, being ironic in a sense. Like none of right. these people are ever going to be George Washington. You know, they're never going to be remembered. George is not going to be George Washington. And that's a reflection of who they are and where they are in life. But the, yeah. And then the, the final kind of smile at the end, the kind of black and white historical moment where George is getting his class photo taken right. in front of an American flag. And then he takes a sip of his like, you know, <laughs> oversized uh, soda and then kind of smiles at the camera. Hence that, that even though, yeah, like, you know, as an audience, we realize that, that he will never be George Washington or, or you, know, you know, live in that world, that that's okay? You know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, you know, it's, 
this is a movie that's hard to talk about, or maybe I'm just not smart enough to talk about it. But that end shot, I find profoundly affecting, and I have no idea why. And maybe that's maybe what you just stated is the reason. Uh, I don't know, but I don't know. It just this movie works because it works, and I and that's horrible analysis. I know, and I'm also exhausted, so maybe I not that's the best I can come up with right now. But I I feel like sometimes when I overanalyze this movie, I just kind of enjoy it you know and yeah, i don't know I, why, yeah, why it works at the end there but yeah i i don't think this film uh invites uh you know rigorous analysis i think i think you know this is a the, the like i said the film feels like a warm blanket to me and it's right. warm and inviting and it's like you can just be in this film and if you if you just enjoy the cinematography, then that's great. If you just enjoy the performances of these characters, then that's great. If you're kind of wrapped up in the implication of Buddy's death, then that's great. Any direction that you want to engage in this film, I think is 100% okay. And I think this is a film that doesn't impose meaning uh, on its characters, but it has, it, it's open-ended enough to kind of, feel like you can you can take out of it what you want Mm -hmm. Uh, and that's it's just such a it's such a weird enigmatic quality and we might you and i both might be like layering so much hope and desire onto this film which is just kind of you know may just be a blank canvas but people (laughs) do respond to it you know and it is it is uh you know it's a lovely film um I, so, I want to say, oh, okay. sorry. No, go ahead. Go finish what you're saying. I, I was just going to say, um, uh, I discovered this film just by trolling the video store and kind of like seeing a title and going, I should watch that, and and then kind of falling in love with it. And the video store that I used to go to in New Zealand um, uh, is, is you know, like all, like all video stores are kind of on the decline, but they have this sort of like really neat thing uh, where you can adopt a movie. Um, and you know, like basically you own the movie and you know, they'll put a little thing about you or just say your name, your name <laughs> that will is, be that is on so the, New Zealand. <laughs> yeah. Put, put your name on the inside cover so that anytime anyone rents it, you know, like they know that, you know, this person adopted this movie and, and you asked me to talk about it and just remembering cause there was only one copy of this movie in New Zealand for a while and I would rent it maybe twice or three times a year. Um, and so, you know, just by when you called me, I like immediately got in touch with that video store and I decided to adopt this movie. Um, I hope more people see it um, just because it, it is just this. It's just a reminder that that your first film doesn't have to be superheroes or high concept. It can be it can simply be. And, and I think I know that I'm not good enough a filmmaker to do that. And but it's a really good reminder every time I make a film that 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 as much as I agonize about like making things happen on screen, mm-hmm. the the fact that the screen exists is is just as important. No, I think that's a really good way to close it out. Um, yeah, I mean, if everyone hasn't seen if anyone hasn't seen this movie, and obviously if you made it this far, you probably have. But you should <laughs> all you should all check it out and. I uh, I deeply love this movie. I don't think I'm ever going to be a good enough filmmaker to make this kind of movie, but it you know it just makes me happy that movies like this exist. Um, so yeah, uh, Shahir, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, you can listen to me ramble about movies uh, on my podcast, the only podcast about movie, which Ivan has been a guest on as well uh, many times, and hope to have him back many times, many more times. Uh, our podcast can be found at www.onlymoviepodcast.com. Uh, you can write us in at onlymoviepodcast at gmail. Hit us up on Twitter. Uh, my personal work you can find at uh, shahirdowd.com. That's s h a h i r d a u d dot com. 
Um, and you can find me uh, on Twitter at Ivan Kander. That's uh, K-N-D-E-R. You can listen to more episodes of this podcast at reviewedpodcast.com. Um, I guess that's it, man. I uh, thanks so much for talking about this movie. It makes me kind of just want to go uh, chill out and watch like a couple of minutes of it right now before I go to bed, actually. Yeah, I, uh, I thank you so much for having me on because, again, I've never talked to anyone else about this movie, so I appreciate sharing that experience. All right, man. Well, you have a fantastic night, and I'll get you on some other time. Okay, thank you so much, Ivan.